I've had an addiction, obsession with food for many years, have seen countless times the suffering it brings, but still the mind won't let go. What am I missing here? And I, one of the reasons I wanted to start with this question is that you can probably f uh, put all kinds of other things in the same category, whether addiction, obsession, I mean, um, you know, if you, if you, if you got the chance to look at my mind, you would wonder whether I'm not addicted to my thinking or obsessed. <laughs> the, um, you know, the repetitiveness and the involvement and some of you probably have concluded that you have a little bit of addiction or obsession issue with your thoughts and the degree to which they keep coming and not stopping. But all kinds of issues that come up with this question, not just food, but all kinds of things. There is a teaching, a uh, wonderful provocative little teaching in the suttas, that um, uh, at some point uh, becoming disenchanted with suffering. And the first time I saw that, I was like, what? Disenchanted with suffering? Who's enchanted with suffering? But, um, you know, maybe there's a overvaluation of it sometimes, or over-focus on it, or uh, giving it more importance than it needs to have, or fascination with it, or, you know, our relationship to suffering sometimes, occasionally, can use some disenchantment. And, um, but one of the things about this question is, um, it's sometimes not enough just to see the suffering of our addictions, our desires, our attachments, but it's also uh, important to actually see the nature of those addictions, the nature of attachments and craving. And it might take, a, uh, take some really deep looking into what's really going on here. And there might be layers to notice. Uh, there might be the, the strong drive for food. I had a certain f obsession with food for a while. And uh, one of the reasons for that was I spent p time in my life not getting enough food. And so then the concern with getting enough food was kind of, became kind of a biological habit almost that continued for a while. And, and I you know, had a little problem of overeating for a while. And so I had to take a while to see how that was work working for me and how what was going on underneath it. And then to see the fear that was operating, that was connected to it. And sometimes I've eaten a lot and it's, it's not fear, but rather I'm feeling uh, some kind of loneliness, and I'm trying to fill the loneliness, and the loneliness isn't filled by the food, and then just eat more and more. And um, so sometimes you want to go deeper and see what's going on in a deeper la layer, what's going on. And then the last thing I'll say about this is that um, sometimes it's not, to become free of certain sufferings is not so much a matter of seeing the suffering deeply, not so a matter of seeing the causes or the conditions that give rise to it deeply, but rather to create new conditions for ourselves. And sometimes the healing happens by, the, by changing the inner uh, kind of environment in some way. So uh, sometimes uh, certain cravings, certain addictions, um, it really uh, makes a big difference to begin doing something to create a wholesome inner environment, to create some degree of well-being, of joy, to maybe if there's a, some, some, some imbalance in one's life, to go and address, address the imbalance more directly. If a person is spending a lot of time alone and is lonely, maybe it's good to find people to be with, to 
so that it's actually filled that whole little bit rather than just trying to meditate out of it. Or perhaps um, to cultivate um, uh, uh, loving kindness or well-being or happiness. And one of the things that helped me with my concern with food and addiction to it was in fact um, meditation, but not by addressing it directly, but by starting to feel a, a sense of well-being, kind of being more integrated and full. And so it then that inner sense of well-being that arose uh, made me less and less interested in getting some using food to fill something that was no longer needed to be filled. And so sometimes you want to kind of, you know, offer the antidote or offer a correction or offer change the conditions of yourself. Because sometimes if we can grow and develop the some of the problems we have, the issues we have, can just fall off like the skin from a growing snake. Could you elaborate? Does this sound okay? Does that seem okay? Could you elaborate on the difference between observing the arising, the passing, or the arising and passing of phenomena? It seems that if we do, if we do one or two, arising or passing, we would do three if we allow enough time for observing the experience. That is, we would, we would do the arising and passing if we allowed enough time for observing the experience. So the um, seeing into impermanence in this um, context of the refrain when it talks about um, seeing the arising or seeing the passing, or seeing the arising and passing. This is um, referring not to the reflection on impermanence, but more to the direct seeing. It's my understanding that the refrain is referring more to the direct seeing of impermanence. And what seems to happen as our mindfulness becomes more stable and we start noticing impermanence. As I mentioned this morning, there's different ways that we experience it at different times and just being curious, how are you experiencing it right now? Um, it may be, um, it, it may sometimes feel like you're just noticing the middles of things and the attention is shifting. And that isn't uh, necessarily seeing the arising and passing of experience. Seeing the arising and passing of experience is, is um, more seeing a phenomena uh, coming into being or falling out of being, uh, the, the kind of the, the cessation of a phenomenon, or, or seeing it coming into being and falling out of, uh, and, and, and ceasing, arising and ceasing. 
And what seems to happen um, in our practice is that at certain times in our practice, the mind, the mindfulness is more, like we could just say it's more interested in seeing one or the other of these. That's not exactly what's happening, but it's, it's close enough. And so sometimes it will seem like all we're seeing is things coming into being, things arising, things arising, things arising. It's not that we're doing this. This is the, the, the perspective or the, when the Buddha talked about cultivating the perception of impermanence, the, the mind at certain points seems to be interested in perceiving the arising of phenomena. It's like, wow, there's another one coming into being. And then before we even see anything more about that one, oh, there's another one. Pop, pop, pop. Just this popping into being of experience. And that's what the mind is interested in noticing at that point. At other times, it's, uh, it's more interested in seeing the whole kind of coming into being and falling apart of phenomena. And at other times, it's, it's kind of more interested in seeing the falling away of phenomena. And we don't necessarily get to choose how we're seeing impermanence when we're seeing it in this form of insight. And so it's not a matter of doing the seeing of arising, of do, doing the seeing of the observing, or doing the observing of arising and doing the observing of passing. Although as I mentioned, we can kind of be curious about noticing you know, reflecting on impermanence, but that's a different thing than the direct experience, than the direct actual experience of seeing impermanence working in our experience. The other thing I'll mention about this, it's almost—it's almost like these are these these point to different um, different understandings around how we cling to experience. All of these, all of these will. Um, help us to recognize that there's nothing worth clinging to. And yet there can be different relationships to seeing these, uh, these experiences, seeing the arising or seeing the passing. And as I mentioned this morning, sometimes this experience of seeing impermanence is is pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. And what is our relationship to that, pleasant or unpleasant, is part of what reveals how we're clinging to experience. 
And so it's, it's, it's kind of like seeing these different kinds of, seeing impermanence in these different ways helps the mind to begin to let go of clinging at deeper and deeper levels. It's not, it's not just, I, I mentioned the kind of levels or layers of, of clinging. And in some ways, these different levels or different kinds of seeing impermanence help the mind to let go at, at, different, at deeper and deeper levels. How's the sound? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Is it ever appropriate, useful, beneficial to indulge in sweet memories? And then the person goes on to describe a really sweet memory of being with her father at a fair. Memories like this fill me with love. Can I enjoy them? Or is it more skillful to let them go when they just start to surface? Really love this question because it brings in the, um, the art of the practice, the art of meditation. And when is it skillful? What is skillful? Um, and I think I don't actually have any answers. <laughs> what I can is I can suggest a couple of things. Um, I think when we get into this terrain of uh, what's, what's skillful in our practice, want to look at things with discernment and wise view. A wise view is the um, is what we're actually working with. Does it lead to more freedom? Does it lead to less freedom or more suffering? And then having discernment around um, the answer to that question. Um, in terms of this particular memory, um, I think keeping the context and the intention in mind is really important. If the intention, say, is to cultivate really beautiful heart qualities like loving kindness, um, it can be really skillful 
to bring in a memory that softens the heart, tenderizes the heart, helps you connect with um, your own benevolence, your own goodwill, which you can shine on yourself or other people. If the intention is, say, to cultivate a more like unified attention, then perhaps it's not so skillful to actually um, allow that memory to surface. Perhaps it's more skillful to let it go and to come back to the come back to the um, the object that's helping to gather and collect your awareness with this real gentle perseverance. Um, I think context is really important as well. I've noticed that um, there are times when my mind has gotten really tight around a particular experience or a particular object that I'm working with. And the mind will, and I won't see this until later, so I'm not noticing it in the moment, but the mind will actually slip out and start wandering among a field of really um, positive memories or experiences. And I'll wake up to the fact that I've been gone. And then I notice um, that there's a little more joy and a little more relaxation in my system. And then I just readily, easily come back to the object of awareness. And I feel like that's the intelligence of your heart and your mind, your system coming into some balance. Like, um, recognizing that the tension and the tightness um, wasn't actually supporting being with the object and that the system needed a little more joy, a little more relaxation. Another thing to consider with context around memories is um, the memory keeps surfacing it may be that there's some unfinished business in the heart that needs our real loving attention and kindness. Um, let's say you're with the breath and a particular memory will arise and you very gently come back to the breath and it comes back again. It's like this visitor that's like throwing rocks at your window trying to get your attention and then it rings the doorbell and the third time it comes back and it knocks on your door. Um, and in those cases, it can be really skillful to turn the attention to this memory that's surfacing and see what it wants of you. What's it actually um, asking of you? Yeah. I'll ed edit this little bit just as I go along. I'm at a time in my life where again I'm at a crossroads. What do you see as possible and helpful to do, to act, given all that we are confronted with in today's world? Certainly cultivating compassion 
and self-compassion, generosity, and so forth are called for. And I continue to try and cultivate and practice these. Other ideas, inspirations, guidance. It's a nice question, I think. It's always a good question to, you know, to look at more deeply how we want to live our lives. <clears throat> and I think that uh, it's really valuable to spend some quality time uh, contemplating this kind of question for ourselves and and um, really kind of go deeper and deeper and explore from different dimensions. I spent probably a year of my life uh, kind of with this question and and um, especially when I wasn't working, the days I wasn't working, I would go for walks and just in the mountains and just go thinking and thinking about reflecting on and looking at what motivated me and what was important for me and what I could trust and took a year of contemplation to really come to something that I really understood something about myself. And so, um, you know, rather than a quick fix, you know, really spend time with oneself. And I can think of three maybe important areas to look at, <coughs> to look at <coughs> our val <coughs> what values do we have, and but not, <coughs> not to come with, not to set, settle on the first answer. <coughs> But to keep looking, what values do I want to base my life on? What's really integral and <coughs> really in deep inside of me? The second would be, uh, um, what, a, what life do I want to have? What world do I want to live in? And how do I want to contribute to a better life and have a better life for myself and, or for this world? What, so the consequence or the direction, where I want to go. And, and uh, that could be really inspiring and really, you know, be a very strong motivating force for answering the question of which crossroads to take. And the uh, third area is um, what's our intention? So you know, what are we? It's a little bit related to the both both of them, for values and the what we want to see happen in the future. But what what are the intentions that we want to operate in? What are the most important intentions, sense of motivation, sense of purpose that we have for our lives and to. There also I found it very helpful to keep asking myself this question over and over again for a long time. What is my intention for how I want to live today or in my life in general? What's the purpose? And I found in doing that for myself, I went through layers within myself. And one of the things I found was that when I answered the question negatively, I, wa I want to live without fear, um, I'd always say, well, if I didn't live without X, without fear, then what's my intention? Because the negative doesn't really te teach you what you want to do. It just says what you don't want to do. So keep asking and exploring. And it changes over time. So it's good to keep these questions up and keep exploring. And, um, and uh, it's, it can be very helpful. Um, but to just, it shouldn't just be an intellectual exercise. But to have these kinds of questions somehow uh, moving through the heart. Or moving through some deeper place inside of us. And that's why it can be, for some people, very helpful to do something like go on retreat. And I've known people who are at crossroads and they come at the beginning of the retreat and they want an answer. And I'll say, it would be nice if it would be probably best is to try to put aside, the, it's a great question, put it aside until the end of the retreat because you might have a whole different perspective on this by the end of the retreat when you're more, more deeply connected to your heart, to yourself. You have some different sensibility about what's important um, when you really kind of have settled deeply into yourself, maybe in, through the practice or something. So it's not just a cerebral qu question, this contemplation, but 
to put yourself in a situation where you really f- are really as settled and connected to yourself as you can and see how it, what f- what follows from that How come love and compassion are not pierced like greed, aversion, and delusion by anatta, by the recognition of not-self? Seems like love and compassion can be similarly premised on self. As I talked last night, I mentioned that as greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, then the the response of the heart is of compassion and love, generosity, gratitude, wisdom. That the the it's like the falling away of greed, aversion, and delusion reveals these beautiful, connected heart qualities, and yet. It is certainly the case that there are flavors of love and compassion that are uh, connected to a sense of self, connected to greed, aversion, and delusion. And so that's really, I think, the difference. It's uh, that the there's a flavor of love potentially that has some neediness that is attached, that has demands on it. It's, I'll love you if you'll do something, or the kind of this this conditionality, conditions to that love, or, or compassion sometimes can have a quality that's a little sticky, um, the feeling of feeling somebody else's suffering um, we may feel a little distant from it and, and a sense of pity that has that has uh, some separation in the heart or a kind of a sense of, oh, I feel so sorry for you, I'm so glad it's not me. That kind of uh, thing going on in our minds around the meeting of suffering in the world. And so it's certainly true that even around the qualities of love and compassion, the sense of self can be at play. The sense of greed, aversion, delusion can be sticking to just about anything. And yet as greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, as they, uh, as they release, and just even just now, just imagine for yourself what it might mean in your relationships if whatever happened in the relationship was okay and that the heart could be okay without wanting something else or wanting to get rid of something could just be okay with the relationship as it is. 
without needing something else to be there, without wanting to change or fix something, to get rid of something. As the heart begins to recognize the the pain that is caused by the contraction of heart around greed and aversion. So, so to me it kind of feels like when the heart is uh, has greed and aversion in it, it feels like there's a hardness, a defendedness in the heart. Mm, like there's a wall perhaps or armor, that there's armoring around the heart, that greed and aversion are that armoring. Greed, aversion, and delusion are that armoring. And as the greed, aversion, and delusion weaken and the heart is no longer so defended, what seems to me to happen, the feeling that what seems to happen is that it feels more like the heart becomes more like jello. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's soft and it resonates. And so when that heart that is undefended comes into contact with another being, there's a sense of connection that is love. And when the heart that is undefended meets someone who is in pain or suffering, it's like that jello, that, that, that heart resonates in empathy with that suffering. And then we feel inwardly, we kind of feel that suffering. And, and there's the, the motion or the urge or the wish to act to alleviate that suffering. And so the heart, as it loosens from greed, aversion, and delusion, is more available to meet the world as it is. It will meet joy, it will meet sorrow. When it meets joy, it, it resonates in, in sympathy with joy. When it meets sorrow, it resonates in sympathy with, with sorrow and pain. And the emotional response in the heart, when it's not contracted, is to feel. I think at one point Gill called the Brahmaviharas, I don't know if he's the originator of this phrase or not, you'll have to tell me. <laughs> the Brahmaviharas, these four beautiful qualities, love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, that they are the emotional map of the heart that is free that the free heart is not an unfeeling heart, but actually feels more deeply 
because it is not defended. And it can hold that feeling because of that equanimity, because of that balance of mind. It can hold more suffering and joy and not be uh, thrown off balance by that. And so as the as the uh, understanding of greed, aversion, and delusion and their weakening happen, we begin to see when our feelings of love are connected with greed and aversion and confusion and when they're more responsive. More open-hearted. Greed, aversion, and delusion. I think I said this yesterday. They take so much energy. There's so much work going on to defend the heart. And there's so much energy freed up as they release. How did you come to be at peace with not knowing? Simply by noting the wanting to know until it went away? Or layered wants, pains beneath it? Or other suggested strategies? Sincerely, someone who really wants to know. (laughs) (laughs) I love this question because I feel like the different ways of working with not knowing and wanting to know are actually embedded in the question. So about two years ago, um, I was sitting a retreat here with Andrea and Pamela Weiss. And there was this pattern that was coming up. Um, And when it was pretty magnified, and whenever it came up, there was this question that I had, which was, is is it what's happening here in the center or am I projecting into onto other people? Like what, what's real? And I was really struggling with this wanting to know. And then a couple of years later, I was sitting with Andrea, and the same pattern came up. But um, the question had less significance, and there wasn't the need to know, actually. So when I was reading this question, I thought, well, what? 
where was the shift in that two-year period? And um, I, th I think it has to do with Kanti. I've been really working with um, the Parami of Patience lately. You familiar with the Paramis? Right. Ten qualities of the heart. I always want to say twelve. I think it's because I want to put gratitude and forgiveness in there or something. But ten qualities of the heart that we all have, everyone has. And it was thought that the Buddha, in his previous lifetimes, cultivated these heart qualities to their full ripeness, to their full um, expression and strength. And that in his lifetime as Gautama Buddha, um, these 10 qualities helped him to um, awaken took him across the, the, the waters of um, greed, hatred, and delusion to safety, to freedom. And as I was reading about this, what was really inspiring to me was um, it said that it took him four incalculables and 100,000 eons <laughs> to cultivate <laughs> these qualities. And I was like, okay, they're incalculable, but there are four of them. <laughs> okay. But it took a long time, like many, many, many lifetimes. And there's something that just relaxed in me around a lot of the things that I tend to strive around, that I want to know. And it was... I do, I have the sense that the knowing will arise, but in its own time. Actually, Andrea gave a really beautiful talk during the February retreat, and at the end, I think you were talking about um, wise effort. And at the end, she was quoting Kamala Masters, who was quoting Manindraji. Do <laughs> 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 you remember this? And I'm going to paraphrase. Um, the fruit will fall when it's ripe. When it's ripened, the fruit will fall from the tree. But just this quality of patience and being patient with being impatient around the knowing, being able to hold those two things and breathing into them and asking, is, is it okay that these two things are here? The not knowing and the wanting to know and the discomfort, the dissonance. And really checking in with the body and breathing. And sometimes you'll get an answer that's no, it's not okay. And sometimes there's a... <laughs> Yeah, I can be with both. It's okay. I've also noticed in myself that sometimes the wanting to know and the tightness that's inherent in that um, fuels the not knowing. It's like it, it blocks the knowing that's just below the surface. So if I can 
I love these contemplative questions. It's not that I love the contemplative questions. I love the um, conditions that support us to ask contemplative questions. So just a relaxing down and back. Letting go of the need to know. And having discernment like, I can't drop this question in right now because the need to know is so strong. It's blocking any access to any wisdom. Then later, dropping back, relaxing, gently dropping in this question into the heart. And then sometimes the knowing will just arise of its own volition. And the Sometimes I find that the question at the heart of wanting to know wasn't the right question, it wasn't the right medicine. Um, and yeah, it just wasn't the right medicine. And that the knowing that arose um, knew better than this little small mind up here that's trying to design things and game the system and get as many pleasurable experiences as I can. Should I pass it? I've had this belief through most of my meditation career that this process ultimately can lead to enlightenment, a freedom from suffering. After a significant number of years practicing, it seems to me there are glimmers of this freedom that come and go. The idea of enlightenment is not something that magically happens like Santa Claus popping down the chimney. Here is my question. Is this your experience? If so, please elaborate. If not, could you describe your process of arriving at a more liberated state of being? What did you notice? What changed? Was different? So, um, I think that um, the word enlightenment is a confusing word, big word, and it lends itself to a lot of magical thinking and big bang experiences, that's supposed to be it, and, and you're happy ever after. Um, and um, so sometimes I kind of prefer not to use that language so much, and sometimes I prefer to use the language of spiritual maturation. And so rather than some magic moment where you're free from suffering once and for all, and you can go into enlightened retirement, <laughs> and, you know, or get enlightened as quickly as you can so you can go on and do the more, more important things in life. <laughs> the, because um, there's a long list. <laughs> the, um, I think the spiritual maturation, there's a lessening of suffering that can happen. And our relationship to suffering can change. So I've certainly seen, the question was about me personally, so I've certainly seen a dramatic lessening of suffering over time. And I've also seen that my relationship to suffering is very different. So there is a kind of freedom from suffering that exists in me that I didn't know before, because sometimes I do suffer. But there's a different relationship. It's kind of, it's okay. 
I'm not I'm not troubled by it, by it in the way that I was troubled before. So, so and I feel like it's still a pro, you know a process of maturation is still happening happening and still I'm on a path, and I just love the path, and uh, it's I wouldn't change it for anything. It's been very feel very worthwhile, and I have a lot of confidence in it and devotion to it, and whether it leads me to full ending or of suffering in this lifetime or not, um, it's like I, I, I don't care so much. <laughs> I'm just happy to be on the path and engaged, and I feel the momentum of walking along the path. And then in terms of the process, I certainly have had experiences of insight that made a big difference for me. I've had experience of letting go that made a big difference for me. But if I look back over the 40 plus years that I've been practicing, at least of, uh, as of this last couple of months, I've been reflecting on this a little bit, it seems to me that the, the ways that I've been changed the most um, uh, was very gradual, a slow kind of growing, slow letting go, slow changing, slow kind of, uh, slow kind of way of being in connection, being connected to something through the practice, through connected to the practice, where day in and day out, it's kind of like you're walking in the in the fog. If you walk long enough, you end up being dripping wet, but you don't notice like each little moment of getting wetter and wetter. It just seems like there's been a process that, I, just being in the Dharma, being on the path, doing the practice day in and day out, there's a slow, slow growth and development that happens, maturation or something, something that happens and I uh, feel so. That's been extremely important for me. And um, so at least these days now, lately, I think that was, in retrospect, oh, that was actually more important than any moment of insight and letting go. That no matter how dramatic it was, perhaps I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll know in four inc- incalculable. <laughs> that last hundred thousand e- eons is. Maybe I'll be a little impatient, but. <laughs> How does the process of disenchantment and dispassion work on selfing? Can you elaborate, for instance, in what ways is it similar or different to any clinging we have? Or is it the last clinging to fade away over time? So, um, I would, I understand that the disenchantment is basically recognizing, seeing so clearly that the strategies that we've employed (laughs) in our lives to find happiness are just based on ignorance and misperception and delusion. And some of the ways that we see through or recognize that these strategies are, are not so helpful is when we see how we suffer, how clinging is, is painful and trying to cling to impermanence is painful. And some of the ways that we see the, the um, uh, these strategies is that we see certain strategies of who we are and and like the ways that we are in the world, our senses of self that 
some of those aren't so helpful. And so what I would say is that essentially it, there's not much of a difference between how this works. It's, it's the same process. We see what is happening in our, in our hearts and minds and um, what, are, what are the strategies that we are engaged in that we think are going to make us happy? And we begin to see that these strategies are often not so useful or helpful. That's where the disenchantment begins to, to, uh, to, to manifest. And we see that the strategies that we've been using aren't so helpful. And then one last piece I'll, I'll, I'll offer here, since this is the, this is the speed round. <laughs> um, when the Buddha described the process of selfing, he described it through this process, and I'm not going to try to describe the process. It's, uh, he described what it's sometimes called dependent origination, a description of how how the sense of self comes into being. And that same process is the same uh, description of how suffering comes into being. There's no difference in the manifestation or the process by which our minds create a sense of self or by which our minds experience suffering. And so sometimes we're noticing suffering in the way that we are clinging and holding on to things and wanting to get things and get rid of things and, and, and we're noticing um, the suffering side of the equation a little bit more. And sometimes the sense of self is really obvious. It's sometimes we're, we're noticing, I want this. So whatever is kind of obvious in the moment Maybe it's suffering, maybe it's a sense of self. Whether you're studying or observing or investigating the sense of self or whether you're studying or observing or investigating the suffering, the, 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 the struggle in the heart, it's the same thing. It's just the mind is kind of landing on a different piece of the process and highlighting that piece. So there's not a difference. There's not a difference really, in how this works. Thank you. <laughs> last question. So what is the difference between sitting meditation and walking meditation? So, obviously a difference in posture. Um, fundamentally, the approach is the same. We're bringing mindfulness to our moment-to-moment -moment experience, whether we're sitting or standing or walking or lying down. And there are some differences. Um, sitting meditation, we close our eyes 
And the act of seeing like takes up vast amounts of our attention. So it's not like we stop seeing when we close the eyes, we're just seeing the backs of the eyelids, but we're not taking as much information as we close the eyes. And the body is less active. And the combination of these two, I think, allows for other aspects of our experience to come to the fore. Other aspects, other objects that are a little more subtle, like the nuances of the breath, the relationship between thinking and the breath, Um, the tingling in the lips. And the body's less active, and there's this stillness that reveals um, movement. There's a teacher that Gil and Andrea work with who's really fond of saying, stillness still moving. And you can feel that when you're sitting. And these more subtle experiences and I come into the fore, come into the foreground of our awareness. One minute. With walking, um, eyes are usually open, although you can do walking meditation with the eyes closed and I've done that before. And with walking, it feels like it's a little more complex because the body's moving, there's more coming in through the eyes and seeing. And to me, walking is a, a bridge that helps to um, connect the, the continuity of m- mindfulness that we've been developing on the cushion into our daily lives because the activity of our daily lives is just a little more complex. So we, when walking meditation, very simple, we find a path, walk 15 to 12 steps. Can we be mindful just with that experience? Turning around, walking back. Can we be mindful then walking, extending, opening the door? Mindful walking, getting into the car. It's just a way of integrating. Um, I feel like walking is, helps us to bring mindfulness into our daily life activities. It's time to stop. Yeah, this, these mics are different volumes. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to stop. So sometimes it's useful after the the questions to just just maybe you'll s- just sit for another few minutes. Just notice um, you know, there's a little more activity up here. 
a little more variety. How has it affected you? Not, not trying to get back to something else, but just noticing how, how this is. How is this? Thank you for your attention. <laughs>